All right. <laughs> hey, well, I do want to welcome you. My name's Michael. I don't think I've said that before, but uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, we're just glad to have you. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. Encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just hungry. We're hungry to grow. We're excited to get back into uh, this passage where you explain what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we pray that as we, uh, as we come together as your church or in your name, you'd unleash your spirit here in our midst. I pray for me, God, that your spirit would speak uh, through me, empower me, uh, give me the voice, insight, whatever I need to put this together. I pray that for us as a church, we'd gather around your word. We'd hear what the spirit is saying to the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today our, our story starts a long ways away. It is across the ocean, back to our motherland, so to speak, back to the land of England. And uh, this, uh, this young man has grown up in a uh, uh, kind of an upper middle class family, really quite a wealthy family. Uh, and he's had an idyllic childhood, but uh, when he's fairly young, his, his, both his parents have died. And so he, he's an orphan. Fortunately, He's got some relatives that, that know him, love him, and are willing to take him in. And because he's the only son of his parents, he inherits all their wealth, the family business, and so on. And so he's actually really well taken care of. And uh, he is able to go to continue on at some of the finest private schools. And he's just a bright kid. He is energetic. He is a quick learner. Uh, top of his class year after year. And so once he graduates, he decides to go to Cambridge. And so he's going to head to Cambridge, and there as well, he's going to excel. In fact, he's going to graduate from Cambridge at the young age of 20. And as he comes out of school, of course, the question is, like all 20-somethings, like all college, but what do I do now, right? And so he's got to decide what to do. Uh, one option is to take over his family business, but he doesn't really have a mind for business. He has no interest in business, and so he doesn't want to do that. Um, and so he's gifted. He's a gifted thinker. He's a gifted speaker. He's been very involved in debate. Uh, he gets along with people. He's very popular. He's witty. And so uh, the idea comes to mind to go into politics. And <laughs> hey, and uh, remember those were the days. And uh, anyway... Uh, and so anyway, he's going to go into politics, and uh, man, he starts making a name for himself. And by the time he's in his mid-20s, he's a rising star of his, uh, of his party. He's become well-known in the nation, but little does he know that something is about to happen he never saw coming that's going to change the trajectory of his entire life. Well, <laughs> today... We are uh, launching a brand new series. It's called Unfiltered, Discovering a Higher Calling. And for those of you who are brand new, this is actually like the third season. Think of it like the third season in a long-running TV drama. So like think Survivor or um, you've got talent or you know, uh, uh, The Voice, something like that. And so it's like the third season. And this series is a series about Jesus. And um, what we've been discovering in this series is that uh, when it comes to Jesus, that many times that over the years, that there have been filters that have built up over time, kind of cultural filters that kind of keep us from seeing uh, who he was, what he taught. And so our, our goal in this series is to go back in time to the first century to one of the most uh, important and earliest uh, documents, uh, biographies on the life and teaching of Jesus, 
that's part of the New Testament. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. And to see if we can go back in time and capture some new images, some unfiltered images, help us to understand a little bit better of who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. And so in this third season, uh, we're launching back into this very famous message that Jesus gave. In fact, it's probably the most famous message in the history of the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, in, in the, uh, the second series uh, that we just we finished back early in September, uh, we launched into this very famous sermon, and we looked at just the intro. And so in the intro, Jesus introduces his message by making eight provocative statements about his kingdom and what it means to come under the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so uh, he kind of lays out the path to the good life, or like in uh, Jewish thought, the, the blessed life. And so now we've, we've finished the intro, we left it there, we're coming back now and jumping into the heart and soul of this, uh, this, seer, of this message. And so we're going to be jumping in today at chapter 5 of uh, Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we're gonna, this series is going to take us all the way to Christmas and up through the end of chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles uh, and you have, or you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn to chapter 5 and verse 13. There's a section there on your note sheet called Discovering a Higher Calling, Salt, Cities, and Lamps. And so um, uh, before we jump in, let me just set the stage. For those of you who've been here, um, you may remember this or maybe not. Uh, for those of you who are new, you won't know this. But so uh, what's happened so far in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus um, has traveled south to uh, the Jordan River, where he's been baptized by a relative of his, John the Baptist. And after that happened, the, the father anointed him with the Holy Spirit and kind of anointed him to be the true king of Israel. And uh, then led by the Spirit, Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, like Elijah, like Moses, to prepare to launch his movement. And after that, he travels back north to the northern section of the country called Gal the Galilee, where uh, the area where he'd grown up, and he moved to a, a city called Capernaum, and he begins uh, launching his movement. Now, his message, if, if you remember, was his epic claim, and the epic claim was that uh, the, the kingdom of the heavens, or the kingdom of God, that has been long promised by prophets of Israel for hundreds and even a thousand years, this time when God will come back to the nation and forgive them of their sins and turn all wrongs to right and bring in this golden age of Israel and the world, that that is very near. Uh, and what was interesting is not only is he making this claim, but he is also backing it up uh, by, with signs of miraculous power, uh, signs of the coming kingdom power breaking into human history here and now. And so he's opening the eyes of the blind, lame or walking, deaf or hearing, demonized people are getting set free. And so, um, and so as a result, hundreds and thousands of people uh, are coming from greater and greater distance to hear Jesus and to kind of evaluate his teaching about the kingdom. And so as they gather there on this hillside in Galilee, remember there's two sets of people. Uh, the smaller set are his disciples. These are people that have decided they believe in Jesus, they're going to follow him, uh, they've come out of the crowd, and then you've got the crowd, uh, most people there are not disciples, that they've come just to learn, to listen more, to hear more, maybe to catch a miracle. So you've got uh, the crowd in the kingdom, uh, disciples in the kingdom, our disciples in the crowd. And so uh, Jesus is addressing the Sermon on the Mount, not to the crowd, but to his followers to help them understand what it means to be part of this kingdom movement. 
And so it's with that that we pick it up then in chapter 5 and verse 13. And he says, you, and remember he's speaking, you, my disciples, not you, the crowd, all right? You, my disciples, uh, you are the, uh, the salt of the earth. Now, we'll come back to that. Um, but if salt loses its saltiness, which is always such a bummer, uh, how can it ever be made salty again? Um, it's not good for anything. You know, if salt loses its saltiness, like, what are you going to do with it? So you throw it out and you trample underfoot. And then he says, you're the light of the world. Second analogy, a town built on a hill, it can't be hidden. Uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking, when we go to Israel, um, we usually uh, stay at a kibbutz on the um, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and often people wake up early in the morning because they have jet lag. So they wake up three or four in the morning, and this has happened to me many times. I'll go out on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and right across, directly across the sea, is the sea of Ty- I mean, is the city of Tiberias there on the hill, and it's just all lit up. And I often think about this: a city on a hill. Well, there's Jerusalem. I tell you, like you can't miss it. And so he's just using like normal uh, kind of, uh, uh, items from everyday life, right? So he says, uh, a town built on a hill, it can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp. And so this is obviously not electricity. This is like a little oil lamp, a clay lamp that have oil in it and a wick in it. You'd light it. He says, so um, people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That would be silly. Instead, they put it on a stand, of course, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, or in the Greek, it's literally your good works, and glorify, uh, be drawn to your Father in heaven. And so that's the passage. Where he's, so he launches off the heart of this whole message is after this intro of bless, the blessed, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, this is the character of the kingdom. When he gets into the heart of the message, he says, listen, as my followers, you need to know who you are. And you need to understand what your role in the world is. And he says, I've got three illustrations for you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Kind of two subs of that. Kind of like a city on a hill or like a lamp that lights a room. And so, of course, the question is, well, what does he mean by this? And it's a critical passage for understanding who we are as followers of Jesus, understanding his whole message in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want to do today as we kick off this series, I want to highlight four important principles about who we are as followers of Jesus uh, that he uses from these three illustrations. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Discovering a Higher Calling, Impact, and Influence. And what I want to do is walk through these four principles. It won't take, you know, super long, a couple hours. And then, uh, then we're going to come back to the end, and we're going to hit your Saturday night. I can do what I want. So... Uh, <laughs> And so then uh, I was talking to a lady. There's a new lady here at Rocky Peak. She's from Brazil, right? So she comes up yesterday. This is not in my notes, by the way. But uh, she, she comes up yesterday. She's a starving. Like, are you? Like, are you? And yeah, yes, I am. And she said, oh, I, we've been here for just three weeks. And we said, well, where are you from? You're Brazil. And she said, and she, and she, so we talked to the service. She said, you know, in Brazil, like we would start and service was supposed to go for two hours from 9 to 11, but it often goes to 12 because our pastor just likes to go longer. She said, this is crazy here. It's like, you're so punctual. And uh, I'm like, hey, why don't you see if there's any need for a new pastor in Brazil? I think I'm in the wrong time zone here. But uh, anyway, um, so here we go. So, uh, so four principles, all right? 
So uh, number one, the first thing I want you to catch, so important for us, this is critical to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, he's defining for us what it means to be a Christ follower in this message, that, that we are designed to make a difference. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are not to hide away. We are created for impact. And that's really the point of these three illustrations. So they're kind of two or three, depending on the we got, we got salt, we got light, but we've got two subs of light. We've got hills, and we have lamps. She also said, you talk too fast. I said, that's because I have to get everything in in two, one hour. So uh, <laughs> she's just a little hard for me. It's like, okay, she goes, but I go home and I watch it on YouTube, and then I get it all. So, um, so anyway, um, so anyway let's, let's talk about these three, illustra- three illustrations that help us understand who we are. They all have the same point that we're designed for to make a difference. So the three illustrations, the first one is the hardest because this is outside of our experience, and that's salt. Um, so when we think about salt, we're going to spend a lot of time this, but when you think about salt, I think for you and I, salt is just like take it for granted. I mean, you can go to Costco and you can get a five-pack of 80 pounds for 10 bucks, right? It's like uh, like salt is like taken for granted. The reality is we get so much salt in our diet, we don't even need salt. Right? But you may not know this, but salt is one of the essentials of life. And without salt, you die. And so in the ancient world, salt was very rare. It had to be shipped in. And so it was very valuable uh, and it was rare. And they used it for a lot more things than we do. So yes, they would use it sometimes for seasoning, but here was one of the primary uses. They would use it as a preservative. Um, They they didn't have refrigeration, so if you want to keep meat from spoiling, you would rub it with salt, like fish or or, uh, beef or whatever it was. You rub it with salt. They would also use it for healing. Salt was a very important medicine. You put uh, salt in a wound. It cleanses the wound. Um, It prevents uh, infection. And so it was used for other things too, like it was used for sacrifices. I was often involved in sacrifices. Um, It was involved, um, just all kinds of things, fertilizer. They used it a lot. In fact, it was so valuable. There's a Roman historian who's a contemporary of Jesus. Uh, His name is Pliny the Elder. And and, and Pliny was a very famous historian. And he writes in one of his uh, his writings, he's a contemporary of Jesus, by the way, same, same area, He said, catch this, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. So in the Roman world, like salt was, it was so valuable, it was sometimes used as a currency. There is some evidence that uh, Roman soldiers, a couple hundred years before Jesus, were actually paid in salt. It was that valuable. And that's why we say that guy's not worth his salt. That's why, in fact, our word, no, that's a true story. You're thinking I'm joking, that's true. Uh, in fact, our word salary, a lot of people believe, comes from the word salt. So extremely important, all right? And so, of course, with uh, a lamp, we get that, how, how, how valuable a lamp is, a light. If you've ever been at home when the electricity goes out, say in a winter night, you know that how you're pretty much immobilized until you can find a candle or your cell phone or something and get a candle going. And once you light up just a single candle, it changes everything, right? It's like, wow, we can go back to life again now. And so what I want you to catch, though, is the point of these illustrations is that salt and light are powerful. They are designed to make a difference. They change everything. So the moment that salt or light comes in, 
that the, that, that the world that they're in changes. And so Jesus is saying that as his followers, we are incredibly valuable, just like, just like salt was, or just like life, incredibly valuable. In fact, we are world changers, and we're designed to make a difference. Uh, now, number two, the second principle is that we need contact to have impact. So these four principles are going to build on each other. And so uh, salt and light are incredibly valuable. They're designed to make a difference. But in order to make a difference, they require contact to have impact. So example, like have you ever done this? Have you ever put too much salt on 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 your food? Like it doesn't take much, does it? You put a little too much and what do you do? You throw it away. Right, because like if you eat it, you're probably gonna throw something else. You know, like it's gonna be bad. So, uh, so a little bit of salt has tremendous influence, but it has no value and no impact while it's in the salt shaker. It only has impact when it makes contact with the food. Light is the same way. If you, if you light a candle out at noon and you walk outdoors, it has absolutely no impact. Why? Because it has no contact with darkness. Light doesn't have impact until it contacts darkness. And so what Jesus is telling us is you and I were designed to make a difference. We're designed for impact. But in order for us to have impact, we have to have contact. So as followers of Jesus, if we withdraw from our culture, as followers of Jesus, if we withdraw from all non-Christian friends, it's the equivalent of keeping the salt in the salt shaker. It's the equivalent of lighting a candle at midday. In order to have impact, we have to have contact. Now, this puts us in a place of tension. This creates tension because As followers of Jesus, there's kind of two equal and opposite dangers that we face. I think of them like two guardrails. Like we have to stay between these. So like one guardrail, uh, one danger we have is the danger is we become so in so much contact with the world, we become like the world and we lose our saltiness. So this is a danger, right? That, that Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, 2 in our last series? He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, it is possible for a believer to have so much contact with the world that they lose their distinctiveness and they become just like the world. And if that happens, we lose our saltiness. And we have no impact. That's one danger. But here's the other danger. And this is the bigger one that Jesus is pointing out. Is that as followers of Jesus, sometimes we can be so afraid of being influenced by our culture or the world that we withdraw from culture. And if we withdraw from culture, then we have no impact. And we are no longer light and salt. Does that make sense? So, so what happens is there's always a tension. We need the Holy Spirit to help us here. But, but we, we need to understand that there's a tension here 
uh, that if, if we are not connected with culture, if we are not connected with non-believers, that we can't have impact. Like, like, let me give you an example. Let's say, now these examples I'm going to give, hear me loud and clear, we're going to need wisdom from the Holy Spirit on our own personal life because we all have a different story. We're all in a different journey. We all have different weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So I get that, right? So we need the Holy Spirit. But, but let's say it's like, uh, so uh, when I was growing up, I think the emphasis in most Christian culture was to withdraw from culture so you wouldn't be compromised and become like the world. So if I was growing up, uh, if I had been my, uh, if, if uh, say some buddies had said, hey, let's go out after work and go get some beers or go to happy hour, what I've been taught all my life is I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be in a place like that. I'd be compromising my uh, witness. But the reality is no contact, no impact. So it's an interesting thing because you look at the life of Jesus that one of the things he was most criticized for was having too much contact with his culture. What were the religious leaders always upset with? They were always upset. You're hanging out with sinners. You're going to their parties. You're eating with them. You're drinking wine with them. You Don't you understand? If you want to be close to God, you need to stay away from people who aren't. And what did Jesus say? He said, no, you don't get it. A doctor has to be around sick people. No contact means no impact. It's awesome you're a doctor, but I don't want to be around sick people. I might get sick. <laughs> well, that's true. You'll never get sick, but you'll have no... Are you with me? Look there on your note sheet. Uh, Jesus... We're going to look, go, go down a couple verses. This was one of the criticisms. He's talking about himself. This is in the, the Matthew 11. He says, the son of man, which was his favorite name for himself. He said, the son of man came eating and drinking. He's kind of contrasting himself with John the Baptist, who didn't do that. So the son of man came eating and drinking. He's talking about wine here. Not, you know, he's not, he's not talking about Kool-Aid. So he came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a drunkard, a glutton and a drunkard. You say, how do you know it's wine? Because... They're calling him a drunkard, right? And a friend of tax collectors. Look at the next verse. Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners. That's why I'm hanging out. And so there's just, there's just, now, so you may say, well, hey, I, I come from an alcoholic background. Yeah, probably shouldn't go with the bar, right? With everyone at happy hour. That's not right for you. You might say, I'm a brand new believer. I can't hang out with all my old Christian friends and go partying off. Great, we get that. The Holy Spirit will give you wisdom in that. But if we are not connecting with non-believers, if we're not out in culture, how are we going to have influence on culture? Okay? And so he wants us to understand that, no, that when we want to have uh, impact, we have to have contact. Now, number three. The third thing he's going to build on here is that our works empower our words. Our works empower. So there's a relationship when it comes to being salt and light and having influence on culture, on, um, uh, on uh, uh, a person that doesn't know Jesus yet, that there is a, there is a 
interplay between our words and our works. All right? So they're both needed. Um, it's interesting. One of the men who were there, was there that day, I'm assuming, with Jesus was the apostle Peter, right? That he's, he's listing their Sermon on the Mount. And later on in his life, long after Jesus is gone, he will write a letter to some new Christ followers who are really being persecuted of their faith. And, um, and there in your note sheet, I put this quote from 1 Peter 3, where Peter says um, that as followers of Jesus, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Like, why are you so positive on the future? Um, you're being persecuted, and you're so positive. Like, why, why are you so positive? Um, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. And so Peter says, as followers of Jesus, we need to always be ready and looking for opportunities when someone wants to talk about spiritual life or why we, we need to be ready. We have to back up the truck and tell them everything, but we need to be ready to respond to that, to share a little bit of our story and God's story, the environment. Like we need to be able to engage. So our words are powerful, right? So words are powerful. But in this passage, Jesus's focus is not on our words, but on our works, so here's what I want to suggest. I want to use an analogy that I, I want to use an analogy of a nail and a hammer. All right, so think of it like this: that if you want to hang a heavy mirror in your home or your apartment or whatever it is, um, you're going to look for a stud, right? I don't mean a guy to do it. I mean, the, <laughs> <laughs> look for a stud, um, and because it needs to support that weight. Now, to get that nail into the stud, it's going to take a lot of force, right? So. The nail is critical in this thing. You can't hang a picture without the nail to hold the, to hold the mirror. But the nail is kind of worthless by itself because the wall and the stud is going to present too much resistance. You just can't push that thing in. You've got to have a hammer. So here's what I want to suggest. When it comes to being people of influence, we need our words because otherwise people don't know why we're doing what we're doing. So that, that's like the nail. But we need our works to pound the words home and to overcome the resistance that's there to the word. And so you know, well, what should we do? Our no, we need them both. The interesting thing here is that Jesus' focus in this passage is not on words, it's on works. It's so interesting because to me, uh, when I was growing up, um, this passage was a famous passage, it's a well-known passage, it's one that was often used to say, as followers of Jesus, we need to be, let our light shine. In other words, we need to be able, ready to share Christ with those who don't know verbally. And as we've already seen, that is a true principle. First Peter just taught it. But what's interesting, it's not what Jesus is saying here. Look at it again, 5.16. In 5.16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good, what? Yeah, deeds. In the Greek, literally, works. He didn't say, let your light shine so they can see your good words. He says, your good works. Um, and so Jesus says, if you want to be the light of the world, he says, first of all, you're created to make a difference. But you have to be in contact with the world and with people who don't know Jesus to have a distance. He says, and then it's your works that will empower your words. It's your life. 
And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, what we've been learning in the last series of transformation is a man or woman comes to Jesus, we come under his leadership, he begins to transform us from the inside, we become like him, we begin to grow in our love for God and our love for others, we begin to grow in our purity and our values begin to change, we begin to care about people, we begin to live out a life of service like we've been talking about, pick up the base and the towel, we love those who are maybe unfortunate or need help or whatever, that as people see a life like that, Jesus says that many will be drawn to it. That's our works that empower our words. And so many times in the Christian community, we have thought it's our works, it's our words that will bring people. But works without wor- words without works, they lack the power to penetrate. Uh, we started the day with a story of this young man in England, grows up, you know, fairly wealthy family, inherits it all, ends up going to Cambridge, right? This is a very famous story. It's a very famous man. You may have recognized it, but uh, one of the most famous Christ followers in all Christian history. And his name is Wilbur, uh, Wilberforce. And some of you will recognize him. He's often associated with, he was the one that led the fight uh, for abolition. He led, led the fight against, first against the, the slave trade uh, in, in uh, England. And then later on, after he got that accomplished, he fought to outlaw all slavery. He spent his whole life doing this and died just kind of right, right before it all, uh, all came to fruition. Um, but it's an interesting story because he was a very, you know, fairly wealthy guy, very gifted guy, very witty guy, very secular guy, um, kind of very sophisticated guy, and then he came to Jesus through a series of events. Uh, this was in the 1700s. At the time, the Enlightenment was, had swept over Europe, and so being a Christian, believing in the Bible, has considered, you know, for the intelligentsia, no longer a real option. And, uh, but through a series of events and a long uh, process, he came to be a follower of Jesus, and when he did, his life was radically changed. So he wanted to share the message of Jesus, and he considered going into ministry, but fortunately, uh, he got, because you can go talk for much longer in Parliament, uh, fortunately, um, he was counseled against it and said, you are a gifted guy, God has put you in a place of influence in Parliament, and so, um, and so you need to stay there. And so as a, as a new follower of Jesus who's being changed from the inside out, right, the values of Jesus, the, he begins to see British culture in a completely different light. And, and he begins to fight for what's right and just and true. And so, yes, he, he spearheads this fight for abolition. That's an incredible story. Over 40 years gave his life for this, right? That's what he's famous for. But you know what? A lot of people don't know that there was 69 other causes that he fought for and changed in British culture. You say, what kind of causes? Um, Protecting children from child labor. Um, Building hospitals for the poor. Education for the poor. Reforming prisons that were just crazy. Defending animals. I mean, it was back in the day and age where they do bear baiting, you know, with the dogs who attack the bear and you bet. I mean, just horrible stuff, right? 69 different causes that he led the movement that changed British 
culture and was such a big part of the whole uh, movement of Jesus that, that many, many scholars believe saved Britain from the rev- bloody revolution that France went through, which was on the other side. And so he had this passion to share Jesus, and he did share Jesus, but guess what? His words carried power because of his works. And this is a way for you and I that you're designed for diff- to make a difference. You're designed for impact. We're going to talk even more about that later. We have to have contact, but then we have to have transformation in our lives. When I was preparing, first working on this message um, I came across a quote from one of my favorite scholars. He's a New Testament scholar named Craig Keener. And it was in his commentary uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. But I put it there, and just I want you to just let this like, settle in because it's so powerful. He says, until my conversion in 75, I professed to be an atheist, in part because I looked at the roughly 85% of my fellow U.S. citizens who claim to be Christians. Now, it's not as high now, but this was back in 75. Uh, and, and I couldn't see that their faith genuinely affected their lives. I reasoned that if even Christians didn't believe in Jesus' teaching, why should I? My excuse for unbelief and the excuse of many other secularists I knew continued until God's Spirit confronted me with the reality that the truth of Christ doesn't rise or fall on the claims of his, quote, professed followers but on Jesus himself, the faith of nominal Christians. You know what that means? A nominal Christian is someone who's a Christian in name. The faith of nominal Christians may appeal to non-Christians who can use it to justify their, their unbelief, but such, quote, Christians will have no part in God's kingdom. Instead, they'll be thrown out like the salt and trampled. And so Jesus says, all right, so let me get this straight here. As we launch in this message, let's, I want you to get straight. You are, not someone else. He's looking in their eyes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You're, you're the ones that are going to slow down the decay. You're the ones that are going to bring beauty and spice to life. You're going to bring healing. You are the salt of the earth. It's who you are. It's not who you should be. It's not what you should aspire to be. You are the salt You are the light of the world. This world is a dark place. It doesn't know where it's going. It's a place of evil. It is in the dark. I have come as the light of the world, and I've shared my DNA with you, and you are now the light of the world. You are designed for impact, but to have impact, you have to have compact. And let me, uh, contact, let me tell you this. He says, it is your works that will pave the way for your impact. It is the lives you live. Then he moves on. Number four. I would change the wording of this if I had to do it again, but let me just give it to you, see if the blank's right, then you can change it. The, The way I put it is our enemy is fear, and it's certainly true. I think it's just, if I had to do it again, I would say one of our biggest enemies is fear. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that we've already talked about the enemy of, of compromise. That when Christians lose their distinctiveness, they become like the culture around them. In terms of evil, I'm talking about. 
We lose our saltiness. We're good for nothing else but to be thrown out and trampled. We've, we've lost our place in culture. There's no reason for us. Like Christians who don't act like Jesus are worthless. They should be thrown out and trampled. Right? They have no value. So he's already talked about that danger, about being salt but losing your saltiness. But uh, this is the other danger I think he's alluding to. It's this danger of fear. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, no one would light a lamp, an oil lamp, and then put it under a bowl. That'd be crazy. First of all, if it's a good bowl, it'd go out, right? Maybe they weren't so good then. But but he says, that, like, that would be crazy. And, he, and he's saying something intentionally. This is how Jesus would teach. He would just take really normal things of everyday life and then fill them full of great meaning. He's like, like, this probably made some of his listeners laugh. Like, who would be so stupid as to light a lamp and then put it under a bowl? It's, like, ridiculous. He says, yeah, so don't do that. <laughs> he says, instead, let your light shine. Find a place Put it on a pedestal. Be who you are. Let your light shine. Now, the question is, well, why would anyone who is a lamp choose to put themselves under a bowl? And I think, well, the answer is fear. Um, And it's interesting because um, this is how Jesus introduces this new section of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you go back to the opening section on the Beatitudes, the end of verse 12, look how they, the last Beatitudes is verse 10. This is the last thing he says before he says, you're the light of the world. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And you say, well, who would do that? Like, righteousness, like, remember, it's like what's right and good and true. It's the beautiful, it's the good, it's the true. Like, who would do that? But you remember what we learned in our, our last message of that second season, what Jesus said in John 3 is that the darkness or the light hates or the darkness hates the light because it reveals its deeds that it's evil. And so what Jesus says is as you, as you let your light shine, there will be some people that will be drawn towards that light and glorify your Father for that light. But there'll be other people that want to do everything they can to extinguish the light. So if you think like of Wilbur, Wilberforce, you know, an amazing guy, but I read last year a whole biography of his life. His life was incredible. He was constantly under attack. He was constantly being slandered. He was constantly being maligned, trying to run out of office. At times his life even threatened. Why? Because if you threaten the slave trade, you're putting your life on the line. That's making some really bad people a whole lot of money. You threaten the drug trade today. Think of it. Like they're going to Columbia and say, I've got an idea. We're going to shut down the drug trade here. <laughs> you know, well, that's a righteous thing. How do you think it's going to go over? Right? So you come in and you start trying to change things. We're going to change cruelty to animals. We're going to, we're going to set up hospitals for the poor. Well, who's going to pay for that? Right? You start, say we want education public education for all children. Like, well, who's going to do that? You think, you know, the rich are going to vote for that? Like, you see what I'm saying here? 
It's like, hey, if you, if you go to the South and you stand up for what's right and true and good and you stand against racial discrimination, how do you think that's going to go? Do you think that there may be some pushback from that? When you're a follower of Jesus and you stand up for what's right and good and true, there's going to be a some that applaud and say, wow, that light is beautiful. And there's going to be others that say, we got to put that light out. And so Jesus says, so, so here's the thing. If you're going to follow me, it's not always going to be easy. It's often going to be dangerous. I'm telling you up front. And so don't take your lamp and put it under a bushel in order to live a safe life. If you're going to follow me, like you have to understand, you are the hope of the world. You are the light of the world. If you don't stand up for what's right and true and good, who will? And so he says, one of our biggest dangers is fear. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, he was a famous German pastor, a theologian, and during World War II, he was one of the few German pastors to stand up against Hitler. You know, it's, a state, it's a state church, you know, Lutheran state church in Germany, so there's a very close tie between church and state. And uh, he was one of the few German pastors to stand up. You know what he stood up? He stood up to defend the Jews. He was one of the few Christians to stand up and defend the Jews. Say, this is wrong. We have to stand with them. And as a result, he was arrested because his light was shining a light on dark places. And he was arrested and he was in prison for several years. And then finally, he was hung at a concentration camp just two weeks before Allied forces arrived. And he wrote a very famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And on your note sheet, I put this quote. It's a quote about this passage about being salt and light. He says, Jesus calls them his disciples. In other words, he calls them the salt of the earth. Salt, the most indispensable necessity of life. The disciples, that is to say, are the highest good. Did you catch that? He says, Christians are the highest good. The supreme value which the earth possesses, for without them, it cannot live. You are the salt. Jesus does not say you must be the salt. It's not for the disciples to decide whether they will be the salt of the earth, for they are so whether they like it or not. But salt that loses its saltiness has no hope of recovery. That is the judgment which always hangs over the disciple community whose mission is to save the world, but which, if it ceases to live up to that mission, is itself irretrievably lost. Flight into the invisible. In other words, hiding your light. <laughs> Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. The bushel may be the fear of men. And so Jesus says, you are designed for to make a difference, you have to have contact to have impact. The way you're going to make your impact is going to be by your works that empower your words. And then he says, well, one of the greatest dangers is fear. Right? So follow me. Now, what this leads to is a couple questions that I want to ask. 
as we try to apply this to our life, just real quickly, there you know, she discovering your higher calling. The first question I have is, have you embraced your calling? You could put this like this, have you embraced your identity? In other words, are you clear on who you are as a follower of Jesus? Can I tell you something? This passage hit me with new force that I'd never experienced before as I was preparing this, you know, this time in the last couple of months preparing for this message. Like what struck me is that Jesus is not saying as followers of Jesus, you are a light in a world of many lights, my followers are a light. He says, you are the light. You're the only light. Like, it, in the same way that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, not a light, I am the light. And if he is the light, then followers of Jesus become the light, and we're the only light. And that's not to say there's nothing good in culture apart from Christians. That's not the point. But there is nothing that can lead us to God. No one else has the message. No one else has the truth. They have truths. God's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in conscience. In general, we call it, you know, kind of general grace. He's revealed himself. But, but no one has the light that leads to truth other than followers of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We're the only one who know that. And if we are silent, the world loses the light. There is no other way. He has put, he has handed the baton to us. He has given us the commission. He says, you are the light of the world. Not a light, the light, the only light. And so if you hide your light, the world goes dark. We go into a blackout. So the question is, do you realize who you are? The second question is, are you letting your light shine? So Jesus said, you're the light, but you have to let your light shine. And so how do we do that? Well, we do that by letting him transform our lives and then living life out loud, being honest. You know, when Jesus comes into a life, things change, don't they? Perspectives change. Love changes. Love for God. Love for people. New moral compass. New sense of right and wrong. New compassion. New care. And so he says, as my followers, you share my DNA. I've given you my spirit. You need to be who you are. You can't hide that. And part of that is you need to, to be, as I transform you, pick up that basin and towel we talked about a couple weeks ago. You, you need to love others and love those who others in culture don't love. You need to you use the gifts I've given you to make a difference. See, letting our light shine doesn't mean just standing up for what's right and true and good. It means doing something. It means making a difference. And so are you letting your light shine? You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Braveheart. 
And uh, it's funny because I saw it not too long ago. I saw a clip or something of it, like on YouTube. And man, that is looking dated. It's like, I feel like, yeah, my favorite movie, it's black and white. It's, uh, it was awesome. It was like, yeah, they hadn't invented language yet. They're just, uh, but, no, but it's, uh, and if you remember, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite scenes from that movie is where Mel Gibson, who plays, you know, William Wallace, who's leading the Scottish forces, and they're rebelling against the, the oppressive uh, English. And of course, the English are coming to battle. It's the first big battle they're going to have. The English are well-equipped and they're well-trained and they have huge army and so William Wallace, he's leaving this group of ragtag, you know, clans, right? And they, they've got all these weird weapons, and, and they're not really an army, and they're greatly outnumbered. And so you know, he's got to inspire the troops. So I don't know if you can picture that scene where he's on his horse, and he's riding back and forth, and he's challenging them about who they are, and what they're called to be, and what they're fighting for. And the men are getting so excited, and they're so pumped up. And then he rides back to his tent, and he's got his inner circle of friends there. And one of the guys says to him, because they know what's up. They're going to like, nice speech. They said, what do you want us to do now? And he said, I want you just to go and be yourselves. When I sing in this passage, I want you to picture this. Jesus is sitting on a hillside with maybe hundreds, thousands of people around, but disciples probably in the tens, the twenties, maybe not very many disciples. It's the start of his movement. They're a ragtag group. They're peasants for the most part. They don't have that much education. They don't have that much money. They're poor. And Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world. And I think if we're there, it's like, are you kidding me? If this is the hope of the world, we might as well close up shop. I mean, are you with me? It's like, this is like, imagine, you know, like, you know, the hillsides of Britain or something, you know, and you got these, you know, picture that in your mind back a couple hundred years ago, and you have these poor peasants there. Like, you're the light, like, you're the light of the world. Like, this world is dark, and you're the light, and that's what's going to do it? So Jesus says on that day, it's like crazy. If we were there, if we could take some filters off, we'd be saying, oh, we're in trouble. But you know what? He was right. And you know what? He went out and lived his life. He died his death. He rose by the power of the Spirit. He sent his Spirit to be in them. And within 20 years, two of his followers were in the Greco-Roman city of Thessalonica, a thousand miles away. And when they got arrested, the charge brought against them is that the men who have turned the world upside down have come to our city. Are you kidding me? 20 years later? That a claim like that can be made? Can I tell you something? If you were to study history, you know what you would find? Oftentimes, Christianity will be criticized today, rightly so, but the critics will talk, they'll bring up the Inquisition, they'll bring up the Crusades, they'll bring the pogroms against the Jews. All hor horrendous blots on the movement of Jesus. But can I tell you something? You take Jesus and his first followers out of this world, you would not recognize the world today.
Can I tell you something? This world has been radically changed by the movement of Jesus. Can I tell you, when Jesus came, babies in the Roman Empire were thrown out. They weren't even named until the eighth day because the dad had to decide whether to keep them or not. In the Roman Empire, sexual immorality was a way of life, and women were treated as slaves, and the poor were despised, and there were no hospitals, and there were no education for the poor, and there were no health clinics, and violence was the rule. And if you study the history of the world, it is the movement of Jesus that's changed all of that. And we have forgotten it because Throughout history, there have been men and women who said, I follow Jesus, I'm empowered by his spirit, and I will listen, and I will follow, and I will let my light shine, and they changed the world. And now it is our time. So I look at you at the church of Rocky Peak. I don't say, read a passage, you are the light of the world. I look at you, and I say, you are the light of the world. You, and you, and you, and you, you are the light of the world. Not you should be, you are. So let your light shine. And may we gather together as a church of Jesus, and may we pursue him with a full heart, and may we surrender to him and let him transform him by the spirit that we can go out and change the world because this is a commission. You are the salt, you are the light, so be who you are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you said it, not us. I never would have said that we're the light of the world. I would have said that is a big misstatement. But you, the king of creation, you said that we are. And so, God, we pray that you would just fill us with a new boldness, but also a hunger, a hunger to be transformed and changed. So that as we talked about in the last series, that our bulbs would burn bright. And that we'd be transformed in our love and our compassion and our sacrifice and our courage would be so compelling that though there would be many who would try to extinguish that light, there would be many who would come and glorify our Father in heaven for what he's doing. Lord, we pray that you'd unleash that kind of a movement here. And we pray as we, we worship now, as we bring our gifts, our offerings, we pray you'd use them to unleash that kind of a movement. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Burn like a fire in me. Remember what we've been learning in our last series, that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. We can never sustain it. We can never make it happen. It's not something we generate. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. Our job is to listen and follow. And so may this be a week where, as a church, we're listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. In this area of our life that perhaps had a fear that we have put a bowl over our lamp. We've actually been pretending to be something we're not. Like Jesus has changed us, but we're pretending not to be changed because of pushback. Maybe there's an area of our life where the Holy Spirit is stirring us to good works, to love and good works. 
This week in your life group study, I mean, studying all the New Testament about good works, and the Holy Spirit's going to stir in your heart. We've been talking about serving sacrificially. Maybe there's someone God's calling you to serve, and so your works, they're going to give your words power when the time comes. But may this be a week that God is showing us what it means to have contact so we can have impact. May we embrace our true identity. May we know who we are and the role we play in this world. That as he was, so we are. As he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. The one who said, I am the light of the world, says, you are the light of the world. So may this be a week where we listen, we follow, we burn brightly. And the more than anything else, we would just be ourselves. Amen? A couple of things as you go. Don't forget, next week, uh, uh, if you want, uh, need prayer tonight over here to my right, as always. But next week, looking really forward to this, um, Jesus is so countercultural to the religious culture of his day that people began to wonder, like, is he even, like, acting like a Jew at all? Like, is he even, like, believe our scriptures? Like, some of his teaching is so different than what we've been taught. Maybe he's come to abolish everything that we've believed. And next week, Jesus is going to speak to that. Give me a powerful message on how Jesus sees the word. And like we talked in the last year, the role the word plays in our life. So it'll be a great follow-up to what we've been learning. I hope you can be here. And until then, may the Lord go with you, and may you be who you are. God bless.